We're going to start a new um, message series next week, as Randy talked about, what we call Hill Marks in the Sand in Hebrews. It talks about the Israelites journaling, journeying through the wilderness and the reasons for their spiritual resistance. And so we can learn from their example. So we'll spend some time in Hebrews 3 and 4 looking at that and identifying the things that stood in the way of them walking as closely with God as they as they would have wanted to. But what we're finishing up is a, um, a series that springs off of the um, He Gets Us campaign. We'll finish up today with looking at the way that Jesus gets us because he understands love. A caring man took a walk. Everywhere he looked, people suffered. Anxiety ran high. Hope dwindled. Hatred rose. His neighbors had lost trust in the system and in each other. I need to do something, he thought. I'll bring them together and feed them. Around the dinner table, they can talk and see how much they have in common. Shared struggles, shared joy, shared pain. So he prepared a feast and invited all into his home. But some refused to sit at his table because they chose to only see differences. He was heartbroken because he wanted everyone to eat and be filled, not with food and wine, but with compassion. Love is what characterized Jesus' life. At the end of his life, he evidenced this love in a very clear way. Um, we read from John chapter 13, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The things the disciples understood about Jesus is that he loved them. And when Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love, the reason why they wanted to obey him is they wanted to continue to experience the love that he had for them. That promise doesn't have any teeth if he didn't love, but the disciples knew that they were loved, and Jesus evidenced what that love was like to a very extreme way. He goes on to talk about how um, the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We learn a couple of things about Jesus' love, and in learning it about Jesus' love, we learn it about divine love. Uh, number one, Jesus' love was and is active. He took off his outer clothing, wrapped himself in a towel, and washed their feet. In the Bible, love is more a verb than a noun. It's something that you could take a picture of. And you could say, this is love. And that's why it expresses here, Jesus taking off his, his God put a towel around his waist, washing their feet. And we're to see this image, especially knowing what was going to happen in the context and say, 
That's love. And that is love biblically. Again, love is not something you fall into and fall out of in the Bible. It's not a feeling, really. It's, it's an act. It's a verb, not a noun. It's something that you do. Uh, Jesus evidenced this love by serving others. And our love, when we express it, is to be practical as well. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is how the early church demonstrated love. They, the early church was known for being loving. Generous voluntary gifts were brought, especially during worship meetings. And these gifts and monies were administered by church officials and made it possible for them to give these uh, resources to the poor and the sick, the orphans and widows, those in pretty those in prison, the needy and the aged, and the early church was known for being very generous in this way. Um, Christians expended themselves in works of mercy that the secular authorities, they couldn't make that happen. The Romans looked at the way the church was administering care when there were two or three really severe famines in the first centuries of the church and Christians rolled up their sleeves and entered into the midst of this, in the midst of the sickness. The Roman government saw what they were doing, tried to institute their own programs to help the needy, but they couldn't make it happen. It's, and the, uh, those who didn't follow Christ, they were forced to look and say, look how they love one another. The interesting thing is that the early church was not made up of the powerful and the rich. It was made up of those who were the lower classes those without political or economic power. And those were the ones, especially in the early days before Christianity became the religion of Rome in the early days when it wasn't, the church was incredibly loving. Um, and when we think of what is it that either allows or disallows us from demonstrating love in this type of serving, um, Third temptation of Jesus, when we think about um, the ability to be powerful, um, Henri Nouwen had this to say, said, the temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the highest temptation of all. There is something seductive about being powerful able to use what you have to get what you want. The early church did not have power. When the Bible says God gives grace to the humble, we've talked about humility. Humility in Bible times was not a virtue that you built into yourself. Humility was the byproduct of being a person who was not able to use your power and influence to get what you want. Humility was the word used to describe 
the lot of a slave in the first century. And if you were a slave, you had no economic or emotional or political power to get what you want. In the first century, slaves had no bearing in the court. If you were a slave and you were being mistreated, you couldn't go to the authorities because you're, you weren't, your influence didn't mean anything. And it was these individuals who, when they received the gospel, they were used to not getting what they wanted. And they were able to, to kind of give of themselves. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is a high temptation. We think, well, if we can only make this happen or force that to happen, that's a temptation. Henri Nouwen went to, to say this, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. I think that's an interesting statement. Power is, makes, is an easy, it offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. Love is messy and, and not easy. Um, Jesus' love was active. One of the things that makes Jesus' love so controversial is how inclusive it is. Again, we look and it says the evening wheel was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Um, the most, again, the most, one of the things that is disturbing about Jesus' love is how inclusive it was. Jesus' love didn't, wasn't just directed at us, whoever us is. Jesus' love was directed at them. And that's the thing that that made individuals, it, it was very difficult to accept that. That's why Jesus' love is so controversial. It's so inclusive. He ends up saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? When Jesus talked about love, he talks about loving those who we cannot like. Again, when the Bible talks about love, it's not talking about something emotional. It's not really possible or healthy to emotionally love somebody who's abusive, but it is possible if love is an action to help somebody, even somebody you don't like. That's what the Bible describes. C.S. Lewis had a thing he talked about, the phenomena of the inner ring. And what he described in the history of the church, there's a tendency for there to be an inner ring of us that grows smaller and smaller and smaller, and an outer ring of them that grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And he talks about the phenomena of the inner ring, how those of us who get loved get smaller and smaller. Those who are them grow larger and larger. Um, again, there's nothing supernatural about loving those we like. There is something supernatural about loving those we do not like. Uh, there is a, let me show it to you, by Frederick Buchner. 
says, love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother, it is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, or the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. Sometimes in the name of political or religious influence, we criticize others. Uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, had to deal with that in the early church. There were small house churches that were established. And what was happening and what James is confronting is house church battling against house church and trying to draw more people away from other houses toward their own house church by criticizing the leaders of the different house churches. So one leader would talk about another leader and say he really doesn't know what he's talking about. And and so this was a way in terms hoping to draw people into a place where there was more truth. And what James ends up doing, he ends up confronting this. And this is what he ends up saying about bad-mouthing individuals in an attempt to cause God's influence to be um, increased. What What he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Today, slander means to say false and damaging statements against somebody. The word slander is the word from which we get the word blasphemy. And so it's saying, don't blaspheme one another. Blasphemy, it wasn't in this context, saying something against God. When we think of blasphemy, we think of someone who says untrue things about God. But in the with the word used here, blasphemy is to say something against another brother or sister. It's it's to bad mouth them. Um, 
The Bible doesn't just target false statements. It, inc it includes true statements that demean another's character. Um, I read that there are three gates through which we ought to walk before we pass on pass something negative about somebody else, before we badmouth somebody else. And it's these three questions. Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? And is, is it kind? So before we pass on something about somebody else, especially something that doesn't put them in a good light, is it true? That's the first question. And we have to answer, do I know this to be true? Is this a fact? And Okay, and if it's okay, this is true, then the second question, is it necessary? Do I need to pass this on? That's a more difficult question. Are people being hurt? What will, what will happen if I pass it on? What will happen if I don't pass it on? So there is, is it necessary? And then third, is it kind? Am I doing this to try to resolve something? And um, that's what James suggests. That um, So love, biblically, is a couple things. It's active. And it's inclusive. Uh, so a question. Where did Jesus draw the ability to love like this? To love actively and to love inclusively. This is challenging. Um, that's what it says. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped himself and wrapped a towel around his waist. Verse 3 talks about what Jesus knew, and verse 4 talks about what Jesus did. Because of what he knew in verse 3, he could do what he did in verse 4. He could love actively, and he could love inclusively. What is it that he knew? that allowed him to love. Before we answer that question, one thing we know that when the Bible talks about obedience, what it's describing is love. To obey God is to love him and love others, to love actively, not just emotionally, but actively and inclusively. So what is it that we need to do or know in order to behave as God wants us to behave? Because God does want us to behave. He does want us to obey. The obedience God wants of us is that we would love him and love others. And what we find here is that believing leads to behaving. There's things that Jesus believed, and because he believed them, he was able to do the hard work of love. What are these things? Belief number one, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. What Jesus knew is that at some time in the future, he would be honored and exalted and raised up. He knew he would be lifted up. The Bible says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Jesus knew he would be lifted up so 
In this life, he was able to stoop to serve because he knew eventually that he would be lifted up. Um, the need to be looked up to, the need to be looked up to horizontally keeps us from serving people. The need to be looked up to in this world gets in the way of our loving and stooping to serve people. The fear of being looked down upon in this world uh, also gets in the way of serving people. The awareness of being lifted up in the divine sphere helps us to stoop to serve in the human sphere, which Jesus understood that he would pour out his life, but then he would be recognized eternally for having do so. So that's the first thing. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Secondly, it says Jesus knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew where he came from and where he was going. If we know where we're going, that's something if we know that, if we believe that, we be then that helps us to love actively and inclusively. Jesus knew that he was returning to the Father. He was loved. He could love horizontally because he knew he was loved vertically. He could tolerate being dishonored horizontally because he knew that he would be honored vertically. The verse says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. To have confidence on the day of judgment in this verse is aligned with being like God. We have confidence in the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. What does it mean to be like him? Does it mean to be right? Does it mean to be powerful? Does it mean to be critical? It doesn't mean those things. It means to be loving. It means to be loved actively, to serve people. Love inclusively. It says, there is no fear in love. I really like this verse. This verse, verse 18, begins this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. There is no fear in love. If individuals are told the reason why Jesus could love as he loved, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid of being looked down on because he knew eventually he would be honored. He wasn't afraid to be mistreated because he knew eventually, eternally, he would be honored and he would go back to the Father. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I've said this before. Is fear in love. If there is no fear in love, if fear is high, our awareness of being loved is low. If love is high, fear is low. So here it is. So you're afraid. And what it says um, in this verse, 
fears to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. It's possible to be afraid. All of us deal with some level of fear. It's really why love is difficult. So fear is high and love is low. What do you do to, to make this, to decrease fear? You could try to find reasons not to be afraid, but that's hard to do. You know what the Bible indicates? There's only one thing that can displace fear. What are you afraid of? I think, would you agree? One of the things that makes it hard to love, and I'm talking about all of us, is it's scary to love. It's a little bit easier to be powerful, like Henri Nouan said. The hard work of love. Okay, so if we needed to decrease our fear, we could try to do that. But what the Bible indicates, there's only one thing that can do it. Perfect love drives out fear. So if we become more aware of being loved perfectly, that's what's going to displace fear. That's the only thing that can do it. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I've talked about this before. If there would be one thing then, if you were to pray to God morning by morning, just a short prayer, this would be it. God, help me to know how much you love me. What will that do? Because we love because God loves us. Being aware of his love, and it's not easy because for his love to sink down in us and displace our fear takes a long time. But I think that's a good prayer. And if you were to pray something morning by morning or the night before you go to bed, the thing that would allow you to be and allow us to be the people God wants us to be, loving people, people who love actively, people who love inclusively, who maybe hold back that critical thing that we could say because of it being true and necessary and kind, that knowing that we're loved is the way that, that, that we increase. Uh, somebody said it this way, um, our love for others is an echo of God's love for us. Um, it says, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And we deal with fear, and what it's just suggesting there is if we're afraid, um, because fear has to do with judgment. It's just, if we are afraid of God's judgment, we don't know him well enough. So what you pray? Help me to know your love. Um, the reason why we don't love better, we, is that we don't believe we're loved. Henry Morrison was a missionary. He served in Africa for over 40 years. Um, on the way back to the United States, he began to wonder after all that time, will anybody remember us, unknown to him and his wife, Teddy Roosevelt, at that time the President of the United States, was on this same ship. He had gone to Africa on a hunting trip. Uh, when the ship pulled into New York Harbor, uh, Morrison looked to see if anyone had come to welcome them back home, and there were thousands of people cheering. He didn't know Teddy Roosevelt was on the ship. Bands were playing, there were signs, banners, billboards, everywhere saying, welcome home! Uh, Henry and his wife were so excited about the crowds of people that they that were there to welcome them home when they went to get off. Um, they realized that the people were already gone. They had come to welcome Teddy Roosevelt, and Morrison went to his hotel room with a heavy heart as he sat there on the bed. He asked his wife, Honey, I don't get it. For 40 years we poured our lives into ministry and service and yet we come back to America, and not a single soul comes to welcome us home. 
His wife came and sat down next to her husband. She put her, her hand on his shoulder, comforted him, him with words that he would never forget. Henry, you've forgotten something. You're not home yet. You're not home yet. I stand for closing prayer. Father, I guess we, we know from Jesus that he was characterized by love. And that love was characterized by his understanding that he would return home someday. That this wasn't home. And understanding that this wasn't his home. It was a temporary shelter. It was a temporary place. Allowed him to love actively and inclusively. To stoop to serve because he wasn't going to draw what he needed to draw in this life. This is really hard for us. Uh, it seems like Jesus had such an, a, just a clear sense of eternity, and it's harder for us. But what you want us to understand maybe is not so much eternity, but your love. That might be a little bit easier to reach. I do ask, would you help us to understand that you love us? Apparently, if we're going to obey you by being loving, Knowing that you love us is not nice. It's necessary. The most, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. I guess I'd ask then. In order to help us to be more loving, will you help us to understand more what it means to be loved by you? Open our hearts and our eyes to that in Jesus' name. Amen.